Well, good morning, church. You are all looking particularly dry and not windblown, and for that we are thankful. Uh, yeah, I'll tell you what. I had some fun driving the family truckster this morning down the down the highway. Kind of, you know, felt like we were swaying to the music in the van as we were driving. You know, as the wind was gently carrying us almost out of the lane, but not quite. Um, but yeah, it's good, and we're glad that you're here. Um, and regardless of the te- regardless of the temperature and the weather outside, um, the presence of God is here among us today, and it is easy to tell in the hearts that are being lifted in worship. And I just I thank you uh, for the gift of worship that you are giving to God, and I thank you for the encouragement that it is to me, uh, because it really really pumps me up as I get ready to bring you the word. Um, and so I'm very very excited about what we get to talk about today. Which we'll start by talking about something completely different, which is department store mirrors. Right. I have, I have not found probably a more insidious form of marketing in my life than department store mirrors. You know what I'm talking about, right? They have subtly shaped the glass so that you walk in and you get that thing. And if you're... And especially if you're a big dude, as I am, okay, you get this thing, and you look in the mirror, and it looks good on you, and you take it home after you buy it, and you put it on in the mirror in your house, and you go, what was I thinking? What was I thinking? I've been duped by the department store mirror that subtly changes the image that you see to be a little bit more attractive or a little bit more familiar. Or a little bit more what you'd like to see than what actually is. And I, for one, would like to start a poll for like truth and marketing with the department store mirrors. And make them change it back so that the mirror actually shows what's actually going on with you. So you can be like, no, that really actually looks kind of silly on me. Um, probably not going to happen, but I want to try. And if there's a physical point to this, there's also a spiritual point to it, I think. Or at least I hope there is. At least in my, in my mind, in my train of thinking... Um, there is. And it's simply this. So many times in my life, the way that I see things may not be the way that things actually are. I subtly alter things to be a little bit more familiar, a little bit more attractive, a little bit more to my liking than maybe the way reality really is. Happens to me in a lot of different ways. I was reading a book, um which has a great title, Adventures in Missing the Point. Um, It's by Brian McLaren and Tony Campolo, and of course with Campolo you would expect that it would have a title like Adventures in Missing the Point. And it is their uh, tactful, in air quotes, treatise on how evangelical culture is actually overriding scripture. Um, and, And when I say tactful, I say that they use words in the subtitle like it's neutering the church. And I'm like, oh, tact, okay. Um, maybe not so much, but maybe that's what we need sometimes. I don't know. But while I don't agree with all of their conclusions, in fact, sometimes I've noticed that it seems that they're actually just letting another branch of culture do the very thing that they're crying out against in one branch of culture. One thing that they did bring up that I thought was a really, really good foundational point that's so solid and so convicting is this. The recent church culture has more often had the tendency to inform Scripture as to what it says than to be impacted by Scripture. 
And what I mean by that is simply this. So often we read into the Bible or we read into Jesus what he's supposed to say and who he's supposed to be rather than letting him actually just tell us who he is. And just letting him tell us what life is supposed to look like and what reality is supposed to look like. And it's not like we do this in a real conscious or a real overt way. It happens subtly, like a department store mirror. It just kind of just, you know, kind of smooths the, you know, slims a little bit and smooths it out and changes it, you know, and just makes it a little more attractive, a little more comfortable, a little more palatable, a little more to my liking, a little more something that I can handle. And the challenge to us is that many times we can find ourselves assuming that we know something about the identity or the character of Jesus and actually find out that we've got a deficient understanding. And then when we encounter Jesus in the Word, instead of him looking and acting like himself, he starts to look and act like us. And then if we even take it a step further, then he starts to look and act like us when we encounter him in the world. And this seems to be very, very opposed to his words that talk about a life that is surrendered and shaped by his influence. And there's always going to be a tension for us in being disciples of Jesus, of who is shaping who. And I think in our reading today, we encounter a guy who needs to get over some of the blocks that he's actually put up in his mind about Jesus, when he encounters Jesus. And Jesus starts to act and talk and look differently than what he expected. See, in the introduction of Nicodemus, John presents to us in his gospel a guy who seems to have the pedigree for understanding who Jesus is and what he's about. If there's anybody that should get it, Nicodemus should get it. And let me just kind of list off some of these things. Okay, first off, he has a solid religious education. He's a Bible major, okay? Not only does he have a solid religious education, he has fidelity in his life, okay? Anybody who's asking and, and, and even describes him, he's a Pharisee. He is somebody who is radically faithful to the obedience of the law of God. And not, not, even just, not even just the law as it is, but all of the other clarifications that humankind has made to try and, and, and flesh out what the law looks like and what it means to do things like follow the Sabbath and what it means to do things like not covet and what it means to do things like not commit adultery. Like, he's not just following the Big Ten. Like, he's following all the other little rules that, that have been made to describe what the Big Ten's all about in the Ten Commandments and in the law of God. Okay? So he's got, he's got the education, he's got the fidelity of life, he has the observance of the law, he's even proved by his economic and his social status. He is a member of the ruling council. That means that he's a member of the Sanhedrin. Much like politics today, you don't get into the Sanhedrin unless you are a person of wealth and of influence. And let's understand that in the Jewish culture, wealth and influence are blessings of God, and they are tied to your morality. They are tied to how good of a person you are. Good people get good things. People that are sinful get bad things. That is the common understanding. And let's be honest, how much do we kind of have that understanding, right? Well, if you're a good person, then God's going to bless you, and, and it's when you're sinful, then the God, you know, God's going to, you know, right? And we know that it doesn't really work that way, but we kind of tend to think that it does work that way. 
So if you look at who if you look at who Nicodemus is on the surface, he is a guy that you would say, yes, if anybody's going to understand who Jesus is and what he's here for, Nicodemus is going to get it. And yet there are some other things in our reading, if we read a little bit closer, that start to stick out pretty quick about Nicodemus. And John does this on purpose to let us know that things are not necessarily what they seem. And so let's kind of set the stage the way that John does. Okay, first off, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. Okay, and, and, and I'll be honest, I've heard a lot of commentary on people speculating and, and, and honestly sometimes even cramming words in John's mouth about why Nicodemus does this. Some people are saying he's coming at night because he's really a closet Jesus fan. But not, not for real, okay? Like, he, he, he's worried about what everybody else is going to say if he were to come and, like, meet him in the temple grounds and say, Teacher, I want to learn from you because he's got his reputation to think of with the Sanhedrin, and he's got his reputation as a Pharisee to think of. And so he kind of, like, sneaks in and has this little, like, you know, top-secret meeting with Jesus in the middle of the night. John doesn't say anything about that, okay? John doesn't say anything about that. Actually, what might be more likely is... There are many, many sayings of the rabbis of the day that the best time to study the Torah is in the still of the evening, in the quiet of the evening. When the day's work is done and you're able to reflect on the day and reflect on what God is going to do in the next, that is the best time to study the Torah. And so it may just be that he's following the local custom of like saying, you know, hey, it's night, it's time to do Bible study, I'm going to go see Jesus, okay? I, we don't know, and John doesn't really say anything about it, but I want to offer up something else. That may be a more simple answer, but actually is a lot deeper and a little more far, far flung in the gospel of John. Okay? Here's the deal. When we look back in the first chapter of John, John says this about Jesus. What came into being in Jesus was life. And that life was the light of humankind. And the light has shown into the darkness, and the darkness has not been able to contend with it. And your Bibles may translate this different ways. Some people say, you know, some say the darkness has not overcome it, and that very, very much is an aspect of what it means the darkness cannot contend with the light. Others say the darkness has not understood it, which is also a very good way to say the darkness cannot contend with the light. And, and, and it's kind of a both-and thing when you think about this. For Jesus... No other understanding of who he is that's outside of the light is going to be adequate. It cannot contend. It will not overpower him. But because it's in darkness, it doesn't necessarily understand him either. It's shrouded. It's incomplete. And for John, darkness and light are figures describing the level of understanding and acceptance of Jesus. And Nicodemus' entrance in the darkness kind of clues us into his confusion and maybe that he doesn't actually understand who Jesus is and what he's all about, even though he has the pedigree that says, I should understand it. So that's kind of our first clue that things may not be what they seem. The next one is this. Anytime we're, and, and by the way, like little side note on how to read your Bible, okay? The little tip for free, okay? Anytime you're reading a section of scripture, Always make sure, like, I really believe that, like, chapters and, like, small sections, that those are actually, like, of the devil sometimes because what they do is they, they section out our scripture so it doesn't actually get read the way that it used to be read. 
because because when when the writers of the of the Bible were writing it, they were writing it to be read in like a, a large flowing you know, to be listened to and so that you would make connections and so you would connect this piece to this piece. And when we go and we we section things off, we actually miss those connections sometimes. And so anytime you're reading your Bible, make sure that when you read a section of Scripture, always take a look at, like, what's right in front of it and what's right after it. Because here's why this is important with Nicodemus, okay? If we look at when Nicodemus comes to Jesus, it starts out that a man whose name was Nicodemus, and we're like, duh, Nicodemus. I haven't heard any girls named Nicodemus. This man thing's kind of important, actually. Because if you look back up in the end of chapter 2, Jesus is at the Passover feast, and he's doing all of these signs. And signs is John's favorite word for miracles, okay? That's what he uses to describe miracles of importance. Okay, and, and, and people start believing in Jesus because of these physical representations. These physical manifestations of the power of the Holy Spirit working in Jesus. These, these signs. But John is quick to note that Jesus holds all of this belief suspect. In chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, it says this. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast... Many people saw the miraculous signs that he was doing, and they believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, but the word is actually men or humankind. Okay, this is kind of cool. So now you get this repetition thing. Jesus would not entrust himself to men, for he knew about all men. He did not need man to tell him about what men think because he knew men and he knows the heart of men now a man named nicodemus came to him in the middle of the darkness see what's going on here john's kind of setting the stage up and saying okay there's this whole time where all these people have been believing in jesus because of the signs that he's doing and for john the signs aren't even really that important the signs themselves, John never even says what these miracles are because that's not the point. The point of the miracles is that they point to Jesus and the validity of him being the Son of God. That's why they're there. But people are getting all caught up in the signs and they're not looking at the source of the signs. And of course, what is the first thing that Nicodemus says when he comes to Jesus. He says, teacher, we know that you are a teacher from God because of the science. Why has Nicodemus been putting his faith in Christ? Is it because of who Jesus is or is it because of the science? Ah. And so John is setting, it, setting us up and saying, like, look, we need to associate Nicodemus is actually one of the one of the men one of the people if you will that's actually humankind you know like one of this group of people who have their faith in who Jesus is because of these signs and here's the thing about signs okay here's the thing about signs is that you can interpret them any way you want 
The thing about the miracles is you can interpret them any way you want. And, 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 and the gospel of John is chock full of people trying to interpret Jesus for them. And Jesus going, will you just stop and listen to who I am for a second, please? And he gets into all these arguments with religious leaders. And he gets into all these arguments with Pharisees. And he gets all these arguments with crowds. And all of it kind of centers on the same thing. It's like, will you please let me be who I am because you are trying to make me, you're trying to put me in a department store mirror. You were trying to shape me and, 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 and change me into things that I am not. And so the thing about the signs is you can interpret them any way you want to. And you think of all the miracles that Jesus performs in the Spirit. And some people interpret that because of those signs, he is a lawbreaker because he does them on the Sabbath. And some people interpret that he's demon-possessed, that he's actually possessed by Beelzebul, like this lord of demons, and that's how he's able to drive out the other demons, because he's actually their commander. Jesus is like, what are you guys on? How on earth can a house divided against itself stand? I mean, if, like, if I'm, if I'm, if I'm possessed by a demon driving out demons, like, what's the purpose in that? But if I drive them out by the power of the Spirit, then that means the kingdom of God is in your midst. Which one makes more sense? Why are you guys jumping to conclusions? Some people think that that makes him a prophet or a spokesperson for Israel. And some will even jump to the claim of Messiah. But even when they do jump to that claim, you get into the question of what ought Messiah to be. And that claim gets off the mark fairly quickly. The point is, is that signs don't bring transformation. They're just symbols that anybody can interpret and that many have already pre-interpreted however they feel like. And what Jesus desires is for these signs to draw people to them so that he can actually reveal himself as he is and they could put their belief in that, not the signs. And with all this foreknowledge, we quickly see, we quickly can see Nicodemus as somebody that is interpreting Jesus before he encounters him. He's putting the cart before the horse. And it immediately starts to get him in trouble because what follows in chapter 3 of John is this discourse where people, you've got two people that are on completely different pages and you can see it almost immediately. Because Jesus is really, really direct with him, right? He does, Jesus doesn't play around. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't, he isn't like, let me tell you a parable. He doesn't do that. He just, he's straightforward with him. I tell you the truth. Truly, truly, I say to you, mm. And he just lays out these statements that are right to the point, and there's not a lot of there's not a lot of wiggle room in them. And Nicodemus just like he doesn't get it. He doesn't get it. And I think it's tempting for us, you know, two thousand years removed from this conversation, to look at Nicodemus and be like, "Man, what is wrong with you? Like you just don't get it. You don't get what Jesus is about. What's wrong with you?" But what I want us to realize is that Jesus is actually using words here that can go either way. And, and they're designed to actually make you ask questions. And the problem isn't that Nicodemus gets it. The problem is, is that Nicodemus is using his knowledge of what is and he's asking the wrong questions. Let me give you an example. Okay? This phrase, born again. Okay? It really kind of became part of the language that I will call Christianese. Um, I, you know, I don't know, maybe like late 60s, early 70s when we heard like the born again Christian, okay? 
And even still, we kind of throw that out occasionally. We may have gotten away from that a little bit, but we still throw out this idea of like born again as a term that we ought to know. And the question that we ought to ask like right off the bat is like, what does that even mean? What does that even mean? This, this phrase actually has lots of possibilities. And as Jesus uses it, the most literal earthly translation is born again, which is why we have it that way. But the implications are a lot greater. It implies a rebirth, a reworking of identity, a complete reworking of self. And in fact, a reworking of self that comes from above. And so you see, some of you have born again, and some of you have some of you may have born from above, in your in your scripture, okay, in your in your translation of the Bible. And Jesus is intertwining heavenly and earthly terms here, and Nicodemus, the spiritual teacher, is getting all twisted up on how somebody could naturally enter back into the womb and be born all over again. And while and see and it and it becomes very apparent that while Nicodemus is looking for the natural logical stuff, Jesus is talking of the heavenly spiritual stuff, and, and there's a great disconnect here. And it happens again when Jesus starts talking about wind and spirit, because you may have heard of the word pneuma. And that's where we get like the word pneumatic or anything that involves air, you know, that kind of thing from. And when Jesus starts talking about wind and spirit, he's actually using the exact same word for both. Pneuma, full of breath, full of life, full of wind, full of breeze, full of spirit. It's all kind of in that word. And there's become this idea in the rabbis in Nicodemus' time that kind of like the Greek scholar Plato described that, that body and spirit were these separate things. That what happened in your body was one thing and what happened in your spirit was another thing and that they were actually in contention with each other and that there was kind of like this big divide and separation between the natural world and the supernatural world. And Jesus, in doing these things, is trying to like force... Nicodemus to look at things again the way that they used to be. Like, if you go back to Genesis, that's not the way that it looks, right? It's that, it's that humankind doesn't truly become alive until there is a blending of the soul and the body together. There's a blending of the natural and the supernatural in every single one of us. And that is why we live. That is why we're actually created in the image of God. And these things aren't separate. These things are inseparable. The natural and the supernatural in humankind is, is together all the time. And I think, I think for us, one of those things that we really need to consider is how often do we section out the natural world and the supernatural world in our lives? You know, well, th this is just like normal life. And then this is like Jesus life, okay? Well, this is, this is like who I am like on Tuesday and this is who I am at church. You know what I'm talking about. We make separations between the natural and the supernatural all the time. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. Those things are not separate. They are right in there together, and the wind blows where it blows because that's the exact same way it is with the Spirit. Because it's like the same thing. The natural and the supernatural are intertwined, and the natural informs the supernatural, and the supernatural informs the natural. It's together. It's not separate. You can't. You can't undo these things and talk about my normal life and my spiritual life. It's all life. 
And and if you lose sight of that, you lose sight of who God is, and therefore you lose sight of who Christ is, because he's the ultimate example of the natural and the supernatural coming together and being intertwined. Like, let's just try and spend a little time explaining how Jesus can be fully human and fully God at the same time. <laughs> Are you kidding? I had like 300 years of church councils over that stuff back in like, you know, 400 to 600 AD. Like, nobody ever figured it out. One guy went, give it up, man. I'm just going to write poetry. That's the best way I know how to describe God as man and God as God in the person of Jesus Christ all at once. I can't give you a treatise on it and I can't define it. All I can do is write poetry about it. I love that approach. I love that approach because it allows for the mystery. It allows for the greatness. It allows for Jesus to be who he is rather than us having to describe all of this stuff that he should be or should not be. And as Jesus questions Nicodemus' teaching credentials, you're the teacher of Israel and you can't get a grip on this? He also highlights this need to connect our natural experience to a supernatural experience, to build a bridge again between heaven and earth. The problem is is that there's nobody qualified to do that, he says. No one has actually known about heaven except the one who has come from heaven. Oh, wait. Never mind. There is somebody that's qualified to do that. There is somebody that's qualified to tell me about how heaven impacts earth and how my spiritual life impacts my real life and how it's all actually life. There's one person that can do that because he's actually seen the landscape of both heaven and earth. Ah. And that's where we get this extended speech from Jesus in verses 13 through 21. And, you know, we've picked out that scripture, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And there's such immense truth and power in that statement, but you have to also look at it in the middle of everything that Jesus says in that whole statement. And that whole statement is really about are people willing to allow God and by extension Christ to be who he is? Or will they stay in the darkness? It says if they stay in the darkness, it doesn't matter that I have come. <laughs> because if they stay in the darkness, they've kind of already condemned themselves because they won't even let me be the one who came to be the sacrifice in order to save them and to bring them to the Father because they've already decided who I am. And unless they let me talk about who I am on my own, then it's not going to do any good. But for those who are willing to let themselves be drawn out of darkness into the light, they aren't condemned. See, we're so afraid. We're so afraid that if we were to allow Jesus to pull our faulty conceptions out in the light, he would go, see, that's wrong and that's wrong. And you're all messed up there and you've got a problem there. Okay. But that's not what he wants to do. He wants to bring us out in the light, not so we can be like, oh, I was so wrong all the time, but so that we could be overjoyed in being able to see him for who he really is. So that he could actually welcome us into himself and say, this is what I was waiting for. Ah, oh, welcome. Right? That's what Jesus really wants to do. That's why Jesus wants to blow up your stereotype is because he knows that he's better. Not so that not so that he can like nitpick at you about all the ways that you didn't understand him. You're human. He gets it. He is one. He knows this. 
See, for Nicodemus, this whole exchange is not very enlightening. It's actually very unsettling. And that's okay. And I'm really, really glad that that's not the last time that we see Nicodemus in the Gospel of John. And I think this is why Nicodemus becomes this recurring character in his Gospel narrative. He shows up again... Because the encounter with Jesus brings him up short and makes him question and re-examine all of his assumptions about what Messiah is supposed to be. And what the kingdom of God is supposed to be. He starts to see a glimpse of the light and fortunately, rather than staying in the darkness, Nicodemus decides to come more into the light. The next time we see him, he starts asking questions and he starts to seek rather than assume and he starts to journey rather than standing still. In short... Nicodemus decides to start becoming a disciple. And our final image of Nicodemus isn't in darkness at the end of John. It's actually, even though it's a very, very dark time in the gospel at the death of Jesus, he's out in the open, he's out in the daylight, he's out in front of everybody. Taking Jesus with Joseph of Arimathea and spending a fortune honoring him in his death by preparing his body with exorbitant oils and spices and perfumes that cost a lot. And he sacrifices a lot. Even even though his understanding isn't even complete yet because he's honoring a dead king. He doesn't even get the risen king yet. But as far as he's moved, he's moved from darkness into light to understand I'm worthy, it is worthy and right to honor Jesus as he is rather than as I had made him out to be. So what does this have to do with us? What are we supposed to pull out of this? I think it hooks a lot into what Darren challenged us with last week when he was here. What kind of Jesus are we discipling ourselves to? Are we discipling the Jesus that is about, like, beaming us out of our situations that are uncomfortable or difficult into places of comfort and familiarity? Or or are we following the Jesus that leads us sometimes by the green pastures and sometimes by the quiet waters, but also the one who shepherds us through the valley of the shadow of death sometimes because it leaves us from comfort and moves us into transformation? to the knowledge of how amazing our God is who prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies. Who who prepares a place for us to be satisfied in the midst of conflict, in the midst of strife, in the midst of trial, in the midst of suffering, is present, is there, is growing us. Which Jesus are we following? Like Nicodemus, we often come with the right pedigree but the wrong attitude. We come to Jesus expecting him to be like us and like what we know. Expecting our daily bread to be an encouraging feast of our favorite foods rather than a wide range of the life-giving diet of reality. Which is what he really wants to give us. When was the last time that you let Jesus unsettle you? When was the last time you allowed the word to be difficult or disturbing and didn't just gloss over it and be like, never mind, go back to a favorite passage. I don't get this. This makes me feel weird. I dare say that if Christianity has become an altogether familiar and routine experience for us, we may be doing it wrong. 
Thank you. No, I mean it. Thank you. I need more of that. Yeah, amen stuff. Okay, go let it let it rip. It's okay. We need to actively resist the temptation to interpret Jesus and his interactions in our lives before we encounter him. Fortunately, Jesus offers us an alternative. He offers us the invitation to be stretched and molded and transformed by the experience of encountering him as he is, rather than as we would make him out to be. Whether in the encounter of scripture or in the encounter of our everyday life, Jesus offers a gospel, a good news, that is a bridge between heaven and earth, a bridge that gives our lives that rebirth that we desperately need, that immersion into being able to see things the way that he sees them. A place where we meet him and we aren't the same anymore. And there's both a challenge there for us to reorder our lives and to place him in that primary place, But there's also a great encouragement that when we do that, he will draw near in his fullness. And he will become our salvation, our reconciliation, our transformation. He'll become all of those things as he begins to shape us in what we were made to be, rather than us shaping him into what we think he ought to be. We're getting ready to sing a song that's kind of a new song. Um, it's, a, it's actually a really old one for, for me. It's, it's one that is back from my college days. We, we had a Thursday night devotional that we did um, called Grace that involved um, Abilene Christian and Hardin Simmons and McMurray, the three different universities that were in town, and we all met together um, at this church. And um, there's nothing quite like, you know, 2,500 college kids getting together on a Thursday night and worshiping. It, it, is, it is an unparalleled experience. But one of these songs was called More. And, and the message of the song, and, and I had totally even forgotten about this song, and then a friend from undergrad that I was taking class with last week, we were talking about favorite worship songs. He's like, you remember that song that we used to sing? And I was like, oh, I totally forgot about this song. Because the message of this song is so incredible in that it is a declaration that I want Jesus more than whatever it is that Jesus can provide for me. And I want Jesus more than whatever my image of him is. And I want Jesus more than whatever reality I've concocted up around myself. I would rather have him than that. And so as you, as you kind of listen to the song, as we kind of learn it together, as we spend some time... Um, learning the song and, and even hopefully that it will be your song, that you will sing it as well. But I really encourage you to think about what, what the song is saying. More than the water, I love the fountain. More than green pastures, I love the shepherd. More than my life, the way that I understand it, I love your name. I love who you are. And I pray that that will be both in a challenge and an encouragement to us as we move to let Jesus be who he really is. Let's worship together.